Hi, you are listening to Mediation Station, and this is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. Also visit YouTube channels for both CHHA 1610 AM and Greg Fenton. Listen to podcasts of each radio show by visiting either of SoundCloud.com or iTunes podcasts under Mediation Station in the Arts area. We have a Twitter account that is at Fenton Mediation. You can contact me at either of 647-227-4734 or greggf at primus dot ca. So if you want to call in, you can do so at 416-785-0680 and uh, we'll put you in as part of the conversation. We're going to talk right now with Shaker Jamal and uh, we're going to talk about, in the interest of all, negotiating for marginalized and racialized workers. Welcome, Shaker. Thanks, Greg. Uh, sorry, just right off the bat there, uh, not to be too much of a sticker, but it's Shaker. Shaker. No worries. It's not I, Shaker. It's very confusing. No, yeah. you're, you're right. Yeah. No, and I really encourage people <laughs> not to minimize or marginalize, from my oh, view, nice. themselves in that way. Nice, nice. You nice. are, you are. Okay, okay. Shoshaker. I, like, I like how you use the title there. I like that. <laughs> All right. Well, we can have a good conversation. I just know. And I, <laughs> we met, um, I don't know, about a month ago? Uh, something, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. You were visiting here on another English language program on Thursday nights with Labor News. That's correct. That's yeah. with uh, Fortunato Rao. Mm-hmm. And uh, so why don't you start off in terms of even sharing some stuff about your professional background? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, like you mentioned, Greg, my name is Shacker, uh, and I work for the United Steelworkers. Uh, I'm a researcher in the union's Canadian national office. So I work in the research, public policy, and bargaining support department. And um, if you'd like, I can explain a bit more about some yeah, of Yeah, give people an understanding because they, that's, you know, I try to break these things down that people, mm-hmm. as visitors, uh, you know, it's part of their everyday lives, professionally or personally. Mm-hmm. I, I try to put myself in the position of the listener who may not have a clarity to that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, that's a pretty good uh, perspective to take there. But uh, So I work at the Union's Research Department, and that's a pretty, pretty broad term, and it's kind of like a catch-all department uh, in the sense of that we do do research from a public policy perspective that uh, is important to the union, particularly the steel workers. Uh, just name about the name. Uh, the name is a bit of a misnomer because uh, you would think if the union's name is just the United Steelworkers, all they represent is those who work in the steel industry, but that's not the case. It's a very diverse private sector union. So with that, some of the public policy research we do is in regards to the steel industry, the forestry industry, telecommunications, healthcare, which is one of the sectors I work in quite heavily and one that we'll talk about a bit more. Right. Um, we also do um, bargaining support, which is where a lot of our mediation and arbitration stuff comes into play, uh, particularly particularly here in Ontario in the healthcare sector, uh, where if contract negotiations don't get settled at the table, you can't go to a strike in a hospital setting or a retirement setting or a nursing home. You have to go to arbitration. Um, and that's one of the things I do as well, too, in my work. Um, mm-hmm. And then just to kind of wrap it up here, I also do some collective bargaining support. 
So when the workers want to sit down and they want to negotiate their new contracts, um, I'm there to kind of often give them a dose of reality, <laughs> let them know how much things cost, and kind of help them up to when they want to craft some new contract language. Right, so as a researcher within the template of the union environment, mm -hmm. that you're trying to find out what is in the broader societal aspect to then connect it to the particular circumstances of whatever area of, let's say, possibility of uh, policy development and then negotiation so that those people who are then going to take that information would have be better informed of, uh, as to the realities that are going on. Mm -hmm. And that gets them, especially if it's uh, your bargaining mm -hmm. for a new contract, yeah. that they can have a, a perspective that re really resonates more clearly in terms of what the expectations are of their workers and yeah. the the employers very yeah it's a very that's a very succinct way of putting it and yeah yeah i don't know how much more i can add to that but yeah that's, that's very you know I, i'm gonna stop talking because <laughs> this is not all about me <laughs> <laughs> well you did a good job there so you know that's a great description of it well we'll we'll probe you more yeah for sure i'm gonna gotta i gotta put you on the spot a little <laughs> bit for sure what types of situations for yourself cause you the most struggle in relationships yeah uh, that's a good question and I'm um, uh, so I'm gonna assume the context of relationships within a uh, professional setting All right. so not not personal ones so I'm professional especially in terms of labor relations um, a huge part of the work is about relationships it's about what kind of relationship can you foster with those on the opposite side of the table um, so for me one of the things I kind of often struggle with is when I'm faced with someone or people or a employer or what have you who really doesn't have a whole lot of empathy you know doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't approach something from uh, a place of empathy or humanity level yeah yeah or that as well too and just that to me can kind of be a struggle sometimes because i guess maybe i'm pretty good at empathizing with others and um to me i think that's kind of usually a pretty it's a valuable characteristic to have when especially when i think in labor relations because I generally don't ever see it as a zero-sum game, so I never approach a set of negotiations or a round of arbitration as uh, kind of a win-all-or-none type of thing. Or, or us against them and them against us? Yeah, well, that one's a little bit more trickier because labor relations, I think a lot of people with you, the union employers that will have an us first them mentality. Right, yeah. So I try to not take that as much. Mm-hmm. Because um, I do feel like that kind of leads to very... That when you draw such a rigid line in the sand, it's hard to kind of really understand, okay, I can move this a little bit, and if I just move this a little bit, we've got a deal. So how do you, how do you take your empathic mindset and practice yeah. and try to you envision or actually meet somebody who has this mm -hmm. all-or-nothing type of attitude? How do you try to transcend from you to them to connect? What I often try to do in those kind of scenarios, if I'm, if I'm faced with someone like that, is, okay, usually one of the things that I initially try to do is I try to make small talk. So by making small talk, I'm just trying to see if I can get something from that person in terms of, okay, like, what what's this person's story? Like, yeah. what's his or her story? Like, they like this or they don't like that. And then either try to use it. I make some really bad corny jokes. Hey, you know, join <laughs> the club here, man. Yeah. <laughs> And that's usually a way that I deal with stressful situations is I make jokes. Do you, um, are you making them about yourself? 
I make them about myself. Yeah, very often they're kind of self-deprecating jokes. Yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, that's one of the quickest ways I kind of learned to kind of de, uh, de-escalate situations. And yeah. it can be quite tense. So to answer your question, if I'm coming across somebody who's quite rigid, quite yeah. positional, positional, confrontational, if I've picked up on something in the small talk before, assuming that I've gotten something from it, I'll kind of try to relate to that a little bit. Yeah. If, for instance, if there's someone who like Tesla's, you know, kind of start the conversation, just talk about that. And then if you're getting into like the nitty gritty work stuff, um, you know, just hopefully that you kind of build some sort of rapport with them before. So it's kind of the groundwork beforehand. Yeah, and I, I really, you know, connect with that kind of uh, mindset and approach. Because you know, I believe that just because the other person or persons are a particular way, this is, instead of a barrier, it's an opportunity yeah. to, one, get informed about them, and by extension, then getting informed about us, mm-hmm. and then building some kind of bridge to help connect mm-hmm. in terms of uh, finding some place within wherever that is to provide a space for people to hear and listen mm-hmm. and learn yeah and i mean if, if you don't mind me just adding quickly here too like that's not to sugarcoat and be like this is a hundred percent success rate you're all you're going to find those people who are just like i'm not going to swear here but you know like they just don't want reframe them. okay yeah. reframe <laughs> who just don't want any piece of you or they just don't yeah. really want to have it they're yeah. in and out it's business and to them it is zero sum and there's nothing you can do besides that. Be like, okay, that's their approach. You know, I'll stick to my guns. And you know, some people get kind of loud, aggressive, things like that. Mm-hmm. Relations, right? It can be confrontational. At that point, the strategy you take is just don't let it get to you. Right. Don't take ownership of their no. situation. Don't get caught up in their agenda. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I teach a course at UT in the School of Continuing Studies called Powerful Negotiation Skills. Mm-hmm. And these are a lot of the yeah. things that we talk about in terms of trying to navigate when people come in with a win-win, yeah. you know, positional approach, and we try to, you know, the purpose of the course is to creating a template of interest base and collaboration. Yeah. How do we transcend from these perceived perceptions of yeah. impasse yeah. and try to navigate? You know, it, not everything ideally is going to be smooth. Mm-hmm. It takes effort mm-hmm. of the individual. We talk about self-awareness talk about emotional intelligence trying to help just because wow you that's I, I see those as great opportunities and I'm sure within the labor relations what you know the traditional mindset mm-hmm. it's more positional bargaining For sure. yeah. and and you as a person you know my sense is and as you've expressed a bit that uh, you're you know different from that yeah um. Yeah, I guess maybe that was just... Yeah, and that, and, yeah, and, just and like, what I'm saying is, you've got uh, other skill sets than the traditional mindset of approach and practice that would enhance and, and enrich a negotiation experience. Yeah, and truthfully, sorry, I was, I was stumbling a little bit from my words there, but maybe because I've kind of approached it from a setting where labor relations today is not the same as labor relations of the 70s, the 60s, of the 50s, or the 40s when unions were on the come up, right? Yeah. So to think back then, when they started, they started off very confrontational, right? And I can understand why a lot of people who've been working at the union for quite a while mm-hmm. have that perspective if they've come up in that generation, right? Back when unions weren't illegal, people 
people were busting heads for people who wanted to join unions. So yeah. you're obviously not going to come from a place of empathy on that perspective, right? Yeah. Fast forward to 2019, uh, I'm not really in that context so much, so I can understand, okay, let me try to work this out a little bit differently. Um, all of which is to say, I think, you know, labor relations now in 2019 is very different than labor relations in 1954, right? In the sense of that time to now. Um, also now it's business, the economy, globalization, all these things have really shifted the landscape and the positioning of unions, employers, and government, right? Yeah. So I think I, a lot of the times my approach is influenced by that understanding. Right, so and you're, you know, when you engage in these situations, you're obviously trying to be connected to them and work with them in their reality. And each one is different from the other in terms of the bargaining situation, each employer and each group of workers that you represent. So when I asked you earlier about, you know, how do you deal with relationships? What kind of relationships do you struggle with? What about those workplace relationships if, uh, you know, your colleagues are on a different page about something? How do you try to navigate those? Yeah, uh, that's a question and those ones generally it's just a bit more of you know just one of my coaching strategies in those kind of scenarios is just ask a lot of questions right and just really try to flush out really what they're getting at where they're coming from because a lot of times I think people will take a certain position and not to you know uh, be underhanded here but maybe they haven't thought it fully through and I think it's very important when I ask questions I definitely don't try to take a patronizing tone or anything like that it's just they try to flush out to be like I don't personally understand what you're trying to get at here. Can you flush out for me? Maybe we'll both get to like some sort of understanding here. So help me understand. Yeah, the open-ended questions. Yeah, for sure. So, and definitely, again, I, like I said, uh, big thing I'm usually pretty cognizant of is tone. Um, you know, tone. Um, body language. Tone, body language, just general communicative uh, aspects. Right. So. So why do you, did you decide to focus your professional? practice within this kind of mindset and stream union work etc yeah that's a really good question um and i was to completely on it's like a twofold answer like the the first one is that essentially so i applied for this job because i thought i was going to move back to vancouver i was seeing a girl at the time and she lived in vancouver i was like this is a great way to go back to vancouver but that fell through so that was the practical aspect of what drew me to go work for the united steel workers mm -hmm. uh was I guess a love love interest at that time, but uh, but to step back for a second, you're like I also always knew that I kind of wanted to be involved in this kind of work uh, for two reasons. Uh, one was uh, in school when I was reading a lot, uh, so I, I did my undergrad in political science and anthropology. Would read a lot about social movements, social justice, social causes, and it was always quite interesting to read about how unions were often at the forefront of this, and for reasons which are not really were not to me to me, did not seem very self-interested, right? For instance, one would think that, oh, a union, like the auto workers, all they care about is those who in the auto industry getting more members, collecting more dues, yada, 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 mm -hmm. self-interested. But a lot of the stuff I was reading in academic literature was about unions who were out there protesting for LGBTQS rights, for indigenous rights, uh, for pharmacare, for healthcare. And pharmacare and healthcare, as you and I would know, that's not just for unionized workers, that's for every single Canadian citizen, right, from coast mm -hmm. to coast to coast. So to me, and again, like I said, being someone who's generally, you know, kind of has an empathetic kind of perspective, to be like, oh, somebody who 
understands that there's other people out there who don't have as much as others, but yet are willing to fight for those people, kind of drew me to that in a way. So that's so like the uh, the union was taking an advocacy. Yeah, and the way they would call that, sorry to jump back in there right away, is uh, one of the perspectives they call that, is it's a form of social unionism, right? So that you have this idea of social unionism, which is what I just described, in mm-hmm. which unions link arms with those in different socioeconomic groups, not for self-interested reasons of let's make our union grow, but this is to us the morally and ethically right thing to do, right? That's social unionism, and that's kind of what drew me to working for the steelworkers, a very... Uh, very progressive union and then there's the other form of unionism which is business unionism which is when I use that example of some union that's just interested in improving the lot or the material standing of their members all I care about is for a union if I'm a business union is making sure my member gets an extra dollar or gets an extra five bucks on their pension I don't really care if there's these underlying social economic and cultural issues that my union might be negatively implicated on Well, I mean, what I understand from the business model, mm-hmm. one, is that it's about, it's self-interest within the confines of that union to help uh, create a template of quality of life within there. And the other is the social one where it extends into a broader societal impact where the reality is that the union members, even in the business model, are members of society overall and have impacts amongst the broader society. So from my point of view is to say, yeah, let's help each other within to create a strong and by extension, let's help to build a better community and society overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. I think one of the very succinct ways to, uh, to summarize it, and a lot of academics do is that workers are more than just the product of paychecks, right? Because for me, I mean, uh, I'm a racialized person. I'm a person of an Afghan who's a refugee who came here with his family, was grew up on welfare, had to go to school, all these type of things. And what I'm saying is that all, all of those life experiences have influenced me along the way. So when I go to work, I'm not necessarily just there for my nine to five and for my paycheck. Some people are, and that's cool, you can do your thing. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of us, when I go to work, the way I interact with my boss, the way I interact with my coworker, the way I interact with uh, union members is influenced by all these life experiences. So, and that goes back to the social union model of like, we've got to recognize that workers and individuals are these complex beings, right? Um, and as a result, we have to care about all these things. Well, you take a conscious uh, mindset or effort to do so. There are other people who go through the same, let's just say similar experiences as you and don't necessarily value them the same way to then utilize them and incorporate mm-hmm. you you've made a conscious to take those lived experiences to then be a part of your current and future engagement with people that's very true yeah just because yeah not every brown person is gonna act the same way not every afghan refugee is gonna kind of act the same way it's a very good point at the end of the day we are still you know individual beings and we have our own agency yeah yeah absolutely that's the power i mean i, I really promote about self-empowerment that I don't empower anybody. I don't mm-hmm. deal with that. When people say I empower others, I, I just say people have the power within. They may not have connected with it. And so even in the mediation process, it's an opportunity to create the conditions so that people better connect with self 
to empower oneself and the template of self-determination can be the greatest power to then transcend into another to connect as part of relationship building. Yeah, for sure. No. Yeah, 100% agree with that. So, you know, what do you see as your purpose then in terms of the work you do as a professional, a researcher and negotiator, etc.? What is my purpose? Yeah, what do you see the intention of the purpose? Purpose, like how I see it individually? Or yeah, you. Is my position? I'm talking to you, mister. Yeah. What, what my employer thinks my purpose is. No, you. Because you, yeah. Do you have the autonomy to create within? Mm -hmm. Because there is a construct that you are working within. Mm -hmm. The union has a a policy to do, and then you Mm -hmm. fit yourself in there. Do you have some ability to self-determine and create within that space to some extent? How quantified? Yeah, for sure. No, uh, it's a very good question, and. Uh, yeah, to a large extent I do, um, and you know, that's both a blessing and a bit of a curse. It's a blessing because it gives you freedom, right? And freedom is nice to have, right? But it's a bit of a curse when it sometimes comes at the cost of a lack of structure, you know, a lack of kind of really clear direction. Um, so, you know, for a lot of people that not, might not be the most productive setting to be in. But, so yes, I do have that kind of freedom and autonomy. And to relay it back to your initial question about what I think my purpose is, is really to kind of take that freedom and to kind of kind of loop it back to the social unions and stuff we were talking about. Uh, I love working for the steelworkers. I love the employer. I think they have some really great politics and some really great values. But at the end of the day, like 98% of my coworkers are still white dudes. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, well, let me rephrase that. It's, I mean, it's... Sometimes I feel when people say that they have a bit, they think it's a automatically confrontational thing, but, um, you know, it's still a very homogenous workforce. In the yeah. Sense of like, so when I show up, uh, often a lot of people are like, oh, well, this is kind of different. And, you know, sometimes it kind of takes me back when I'm in a room and I'm like, oh, I'm like the only person who's not white here. There's like right. 50 other people. Yeah. So, and for me, I kind of have to re- remember at that point to your question to be like, okay, you know, this is a great opportunity for me to kind of, you know, show members and show other workers here, you know, like, the, these are the different experiences of workers, you know, and not everyone experiences being a worker the same way, right? Um, it's impacted by people's economic background, their social background, their cultural, religious, political, you name it. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I mentioned, kind of my background coming as a, you know, as a, a refugee to this, ma- to this country and coming, being raised on welfare, coming from, you know, some pretty precarious uh, precarious scenarios to kind of rise up a little bit. You have to show like these are some of the realities of some workers here, and you know, so kind of use it as an opportunity to help show people the diversity of Canada. E- educate and inform people that uh, yeah, just because they live these certain lives and they mm-hmm. get caught up in that being their reality, mm-hmm. they may not tend to have a sense of openness to the other people who are part of the society mm-hmm. community for sure yeah and again and i tried not to do it in a preachy way at all because there's nothing nothing turns anyone quick like more off quickly than yeah. you coming in and thinking let me teach you about this yeah tell me what to do yeah nobody likes that no uh, people get threatened they feel the get defensive on that yeah, so. so that you know there's a there's a manner and a there's an effective way of trying to connect with people mm-hmm. so that they'll actually give a little space for that conversation to start to happen. Yeah, 
exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, the reality, too, is that traditionally, it uh, the union is composed or comprised of certain demographics. Mm -hmm. And so the global change of society mm -hmm. needs to be recognizing this shift mm -hmm. and not see it as a threat. Yeah. And so then people will hopefully feel that they can engage For sure. and get enriched. So in terms of your work, in terms of, let's just say, what current uh, situations are you involved with in terms of negotiating like collective agreement? Yeah, um, very timely question because uh, I fly out to Regina tomorrow night at 9 p.m. for Evraz Bargaining. Uh, Evraz is a steel company here in Canada with operations in both Calgary and in Regina, and they primarily make uh, pipeline materials, so materials for the uh, oil sands and transporting energy goods. So the two big locals are meeting uh, in Regina and they're going to be doing the bargaining school. So I'll be with them from Tuesday to Thursday. And mm -hmm. um, in particular, I'll be educating them a little bit about pensions. From your perspective, what do the words marginalize and racialize present or mean? Yeah. Um, so racialized it's interesting, this is my understanding of it, and this is not the definitive uh, definition, I would say. Um, you know, it's a word that can be used kind of interchangeably for, I think, for ethnic or cultural or, um, you know, terms like that that kind of denote someone's lived experiences. Uh, again, a product of, A, their cultural background, their social background, their economic, religious, political, human, and I think all of that kind of bundles in together is usually why you use the term racialized because it's a nice kind of catch-all, right? Yeah. And also kind of understands that all those things that I just listed are generally social construct, constructs, right? Very few of those have to be the way they they are. There's reasons for them because of, you know, the way people have interacted over time. Um, it kind of gets to this, and not to be overly academic, it's one of the things I studied when I was back in school in anthropology. I was very interested in cultural anthropology. That's one of the first things you learn about is like race is a social construct, right? Race is not rooted in biology. Um, that's what many current anthropologists believe. Um, so, and I think that's kind of what the term racialized gets at as well too. It's a social construct of people. Yeah. Um, so that's how I understand the term racialized. And the other term marginalized, I think is a much more political term in the sense of like how people have been pushed to the margins have been pushed aside uh, from what might be more of a dominant or common way of living. For instance, you could say that, um, you know, here in Canada, indigenous people unfortunately have been very, very marginalized, particularly in urban settings uh, or on the reserves too. That's a form of marginalization, I think some would say. So that's how I understand the term marginalized. So, <coughs> sorry, in terms of marginalized and racialized, those terms. Yeah. They're, as you mentioned, constructs. Racialized is. Well, let's just put it out there in some way that sure. these are terms that others have created, I, I have a sense. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the groups who are then seen as part of the groups that have created those terms. Mm -hmm. Are they or not? Um, I know that we're getting a little... I, I, I just really... Yeah. I like to really challenge some of these sure. notions. Yeah. I mean, the constructs are created by the broader dominant society or groups within society for their own purposes? Uh, in what sense, sorry, to step back, what constructs? 
Well, the ones where we say everyone else is part of this group yeah. and not part of our group. Yeah, if you take like that kind of approach, like a us versus them kind of approach, um, yeah, yeah, that's generally done by those who have their hands on the levers of power. Um, I think kind of, but the thing is though too, like these groups, when people identify as along certain ethnic lines or cultural lines, um, it's done by those in positions of power, but sometimes it's also done by those in the community where they themselves want to identify and define themselves as know where I'm just going to use the fil example Filipino this is what it means to be Filipino this is what it's like mm -hmm. this is us right so for them it creates that sense of community so I think I would answer your question by saying it's done by both sides for different reasons okay and to different extents right yeah. I mean it's to create a connection for some yeah. yeah 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 I think for those on the inside it's definitely a, a way to forge social bonds and I think for those on the outside it could be that too but for different purposes yeah, tr yeah, from traditionally, and so h how do you see these? Um, you know, what are, what are the unique interests and needs that come with representing yeah. marginalized and racialized workers? The unique needs and interests of these workers. Yeah, yeah uh, that's a great question. That's kind of one of the. That's whenever I come across scenarios like that, that's kind of some of the scenarios I'm more passionate about because those are really the scenarios where you can we can really try to affect some change, I think, you know, truthfully for the better. And I think one example would be a round of negotiations that I did a couple of years ago. Um, I'm sorry, I, not that I did the negotiations, but there's support for our lead negotiator. And this to really see in this retirement home, predominantly women, predominantly Filipino, and they're, they generally fill the roles of personal support workers, nurses, servers, mm -hmm. cooks, yada, yada. And, you know, for them, the way the, the contract was uh, established at that time, it was their second time renegotiating re it. I think it was something where vacation time would start at December, uh, January 1st. Come January 1st, your vacation bank would start. And, however, that really put them at a disadvantage because for a lot of them, for a lot of these women, they wanted to go back to the Philippines in February or March, and that would mean they would only get two paid days off. But when you fly to the Philippines, you're flying, what, 20 hours, I think, or something like that, maybe? Yeah, and the cost. And the cost, the cost, uh, sorry, excuse me, the cost, the time. Yeah. So you can't really fly there for 48 hours. No. I mean, you could if you're super rich and you don't have to go back to your job. But the point being for them, it was a pretty heavy burden. And a lot of them want to go back there for personal reasons. So to really try to flush that out and explain that for the employer, none of whom were Filipino and very few of them were female, to understand, like, look, this is what our workers here are facing like this is the situation this is why we have this proposal on the table and very much to their credit they understood that and you know they like oh yeah you know we can work around this we can try to fix this so that to me is something where you know there is they were marginalized because you know generally female workers don't have that much power unfortunately um, and you know this is an, this was uh, a situation faced by a particular group of people this workplace. Well, let me ask you, how many uh, people within the space that you function are female? So uh, I'm going to interpret that question in terms of meaning like the healthcare sector. No, in terms of the people in the union people who in the represent, union? You know, who do the bargaining oh, on okay. behalf of, gotcha. uh, you know, the mm -hmm. workers who are, let's just say, predominantly female mm -hmm. as a group. Yeah, so you're talking about staff. Yes. Correct, like me. Um, yes. I'm going to guess right now, uh, 
35 to 40 percent of the entire workforce yeah which is too low obviously it's far too low but that's what i'm just guessing off how do you see that impacting the path of where you're trying to create that societal broader change yeah for sure and it's it's a bit tough because when you deal with some workforces which are just so undeniably feminized i.e retirement sector nursing sector where like i'm talking when i go in there it's like you look at the employee sheet and it's like 94% women, right? And that's one of the first things that jumps out at you um, is to really understand that, unfortunately, for a lot of cases for, you know, women, um, those who identify as women who identify as female, um, face certain scenarios and certain situations which those who identify as male, men, you and I, don't face or are less likely to face. Um, and one of them being, you know, in a little bit of a sad topic, but domestic violence, right? The percentages of women who face domestic violence compared to men is just like, mm -hmm. it's mind-boggling. And, you know, domestic violence, I think the misconception for a lot of men is that it's something that happens at home and, you know, you shouldn't really let it affect you in the workplace. But no, the amount of times it spills over into the workplace mm -hmm. of no fault of, let me face it, not that they're ever at fault, but, you know, the fact that it can spill over into the workplace and impact a whole bunch of other people really uh, yeah. it can be tough for a male staff rep sometimes to understand that, to understand all the challenges and the layers and the complexities involved with that. Yeah, I mean, Bill 168, which is an amendment to the Occupational Health and Safety Act, which incorporated these concepts, constructs, solid of workplace harassment and workplace violence. In addition, putting in there the concept of domestic violence mm -hmm. and the whole nature that people's personal relationships when people leave home close the door not everything stays there people carry their lived experiences into their other relationships sure. i.e the workplace yeah that's a really good way of putting it and i think another way also to uh, think about it too is for for women is often you know these uh, societal uh, stereotypes of them having to be kind of the caregivers, right? And what that means, and this devaluing by society of caregivers. You know, how much work is done at home a lot of times by women taking care of people, taking care of elderly people, and they're not being paid for it by it, they're not being really recognized for it, they're often at a disadvantage for it because they still have to have a job, you still got to show up. But when you go home, they don't really kick up their feet on the table a lot of times and crack open a beer. No, they gotta bathe someone. They gotta take care of someone. They gotta do this. They gotta do that. You know. So um, I may have not articulated that in the, the most PC way, but I think you know the point being there that there's often these stereotypes of women and the type of things that are expected of them with mm, relatively little to no recognition. You know? <coughs> Sorry, the acknowledgement that people go through things and to recognize that yeah. and appreciate, and I think self-awareness as well that people have from their own biases and they project those much into their attitude their behavior and their words the language we use in includes certain stereotypes right and that becomes the understanding and if we don't challenge some of these notions back how do we create some positive change yeah no that's a very well put yeah so i you know I really, that's why when I heard you on the other program, I said, hey, this is somebody I could have a nice conversation with. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
because these are some of the notions that I, I like to promote about social change, yeah. diversity, inclusivity, seeing differences rather than as barriers, what separates us, the great opportunities to be enriched and enlightened by. Yeah. What do I not know about you that I could learn of and about? And likewise, what do you not know about me that you may make assumptions about that you can learn of and about me? And together from that new understanding, template of understanding, mm -hmm. we can create another template of inclusivity. Yeah, for sure. So what do you want employers, you know, the people who are, you know, organizing, who have the power, mm -hmm. at least the perceived power, mm -hmm. especially financially, mm -hmm. over workers who don't generally have that power, mm -hmm. to better understand about the circumstances of marginalized and racialized people and workers? Yeah, that's, that's a phenomenal question, actually. And I think it's that, you know, it trying to kind of meet them halfway or trying to accommodate them or trying to understand, you know, what the issues are that, you know, the union may be bringing forward on these workers' behalf does not, that there's going to be a win-win situation. And I, going back to the scenario of, you know, just slightly tweaking the vacation provisions to allow these workers to get their time off so that when they go to the Philippines, um, they can have some more paid time off, right? Um, you're more likely to have a happier workforce and more likely to have people who are going to stick around longer more likely to have people who are going to come back more recharged they're more committed to their job committed to the customers um, you know if you really recognize that that that's this is a win-win situation it's not zero sum this is not a threat to your power to call the shots this is an invitation to see something slightly from a different perspective yeah see meet us halfway and we'll meet you halfway type thing. it's a great opportunity to be enriched i mean yeah. the happier worker is more productive yeah, which sure. you know for the profit-driven employers or workplaces yeah. that's their goal that's their ideal increased profit margin for sure yeah and i think one way to you know it's hard because you don't have metrics on this but you know it's always kind of nice when you show up someone you can relate to someone so if you show up to a place where you know you've got a diverse workforce kind of greeting you chances are people in the city of toronto where half of us are foreign born and if we show up to a place of business where like okay we can kind of relate with these people here I'm probably more likely to stick around. I'm probably more likely to pull out my credit card. So, you know, um, all yeah. which is to say that I think diversity pays. Mm hmm And, you know, people also, by extension, will use less the EAPs, the employee assistance plans, and the benefits, the cost factor to the employer. And then that's trickled down to the, yeah. the workers who have to yeah. get deductions from yeah. to pay for those benefits. For sure, yeah. I think, yeah, there's, very, there's a lot of different elements to productivity that could be... Uh, benefited from this you know what would you say for society overall and how would they benefit from having better negotiations in terms of the outcomes for marginalized and racialized people and workers how would that experience within that setting of the workplace extend into the broader societal good yeah um ooh, that's a tough question um you know, we, well, we do live in a capitalist society, right? Like, this is a society where, you know, it's a lot of things are commodified, a lot of things have a price tag on them, and, you know, generally, as a result, we have a very, well, not as a result of living in a capitalist society, but we, we have a pretty well-functioning capitalist society, and we do have a pretty high standard of living. And all of which is to say, when you have 
you know, better labor relations at the ground level, it does trickle up. You know, um, I think when you have workers who are paid a fair wage, who have certain protections at work, who have certain accommodations at work, I'm not unreasonable accommodations, um, I think you're going to have those influences felt throughout society. You're going to see, you know, workers, citizens more engaged. Um, there's been tons of studies done in terms of uh, unionized workers are more, much more likely to be involved in the elections. We also live in a democratic society. Um, so having people, um, you know, work in settings in which they're compensated fairly, treated with respect, are more likely, I think, and I think the studies would show as well too, to be more engaged outside the workplace. Yeah, so the apathy yeah. of what might be seen when voter turnout in terms of elections yeah. could be marginally include, uh, increased, I should say. For sure, yeah. Marketly, yeah, yeah, in yeah, some way. Yeah, the studies have shown there's a, there's, there's a lot of correlation to yeah. it. Yeah. So how have you changed as a person in terms of your journey within all this work? I like reflective questions. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a reflective question. I think I've become a lot more self-aware when I'm in rooms. Um, and I think I've also become a, a lot more aware in terms of, um, you know, how to approach situations which, you know, you may not have a lot of information on. You may not necessarily know what the other side is like, what the mood of the room is. And also, you may not know if the information that you have is complete or accurate. In a lot of cases in which I've learned, you get burned halfway through because you think, you know, you got some piece of info from one of your own uh, members or staff reps. Yeah, right. And you take that as solid or, quote, the truth, we'll just say, with quotes. Mm -hmm. And then you learn that there's more to the story. 100%. Yeah, and there's nothing kind of like being served a humble, a slice of humble pie midway through your, through your, uh, through your work. Like to find out, like, oh, well, what I knew really is not true. All of which is to say to your question of what I've learned is yeah. you can never really be, you can never do too much of your homework really leading up to it. And, and how do you see that, though, incorporated about your skill sets? Have they changed? No, it just means I kind of draw on them more. Like, I've always been a pretty good researcher. I've always been a pretty good re writer, reader. I think I'm pretty good at communication, both orally and uh, in writing. So it just really means kind of doubling down on it. I think I'm fortunate because I, I've developed those skills throughout my school and my early work. So it's nice that I have them. I've always had those. It just means like, just take a deep breath and you kind of go from there type of thing in the sense of like, really make sure you know all of it and you know all the angles. Well, I think, I think you've developed it, if I can speak, that because you have the sense of openness. Yeah. You're curious and you want to know. That you don't take the position that you know it all. You're a somewhat sponge. You, you know, curiosity and judgment. Judgment where we fill in the blanks for ourselves about someone else yeah. or a situation. Curiosity is where we're asking the others to fill that in for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I you know, I, I really sense for you, and I'm not speaking for you, <laughs> that, uh, you know, you have this openness because you yeah. want to learn. I think that's pretty fair and I think that's pretty accurate, yeah. So what suggestions can you share? as to how the lived experiences of marginalized and racialized workers can be that much better, or made better, at least. It's 
Sorry, come again. What suggestions? Yeah, what suggestions can you, can you share as to how the lived experiences can of individuals marginalized, racialized, can make the workplace, let's just say, even better? S suggestions for who? Like for, for our listeners. For our listeners. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, one of the purposes here is to try to educate and inform the public with uh, access yeah. to information that they may not have be uh, aware of or even thought of. Yeah. So uh, I seek to challenge the yeah. listeners to open their mindsets up, too. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think you kind of just answer it for me, really. You know, a suggestion would be kind of, you know, try to at least just have a bit of an open mindset, you know. Because it's different doesn't necessarily mean that it's weird. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, right? Those are value judgments. Uh, very few things, I think, in life are black and white. Um, so... Or, or binary, or however you want to frame it. So I think just kind of open yourself up and just take that, you know, take that kind of position. Like, let me at least hear this out, or you got to lose by hearing it out, and then you know, and then make your then make your assessment from that. But at least hear someone out, and at least understand kind of where they're coming, or at least at least be open enough to try to understand, try to meet them halfway through, and yeah, because I mean, like in a city like Toronto, I just can't imagine how. It must be really tough to get by and be that perspective of like it's either this or nothing, because that's not that's not really Toronto. And it's like that's not really well. Not the diversity here. of that's individuals yeah. who come from, you know, other spaces and yeah. you know, become here, yeah. settle here, and then that just creates other yeah. creations of hybrids and blends and. Yeah, I think very few people would say that Toronto is boring because of its diversity. Right? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't think anyone would tell you that. I, I would push it the other way, that uh, yeah. Toronto's to be celebrated because of its diversity. And that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. exactly, right? Yeah. Um, and my point being that, you know, your work or your day-to-day -day life could be so much more enhanced by just being that much more open. Right? Yeah. At the end of the day, everything comes down to relationships and to who you're talking with and who you're dealing with. And, you know, we're social beings. Like, we, we have to work with one another. That's, that's at the root of what being a human is. Yeah, we don't live in isolation. No, we don't live in caves anymore. No. no. Hermits? Most of us don't. Well, Most of us don't. Uh, you know, people could have the hermit mindset that they, sure, they walk within, yeah, right? Yeah, but like a large yeah. part of like this, the GTA, the 2.6 million people who live here, yeah. we're going to come across one another. <laughs> like, we're going to have to work with one another. Yeah, there's so much opportunity from yeah. the differences that we have. Yeah. What message would you like the listener to take from our conversation tonight? maybe what I just kind of just said at the end of the day that you know just trying to be open trying to meet people halfway and I think that's really not necessarily just for their betterment I think it's to our own betterment too to just really opening opening your perspective up and to really recognize that you know there's usually a backstory to everything and you know very few things in life are black and white yeah <clears throat> using the symbolism of an iceberg to represent a person or a situation what you see is not necessarily what is because what you see is the that mass floating on the waterline, okay. and then we if we identify that being the whole story or perspective, and that's only about ten percent of the total reality, which is below the waterline, we can't see. So we got to give consideration to intentionally go below the waterline to learn of and about. Yeah. So on the surface is the what, we're going for the why. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, it's a very very good way of putting it. So. You're tomorrow. You're you're leaving 
for yeah, the West Coast? Yeah, no, uh, not the West Coast, Regina. So oh, I'm Regina? in the prairies. Okay. Yeah, for four days with uh, steel workers. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wish you the best with that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate it if you could return on a future date. We'll figure that out together some future time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'd be, uh, I'd be happy to. So I want you to think, I don't know, what is part of your world? Mm-hmm. What would you like to, you know, help educate and inform us about to help further enhance us and enrich, in, enrich our worlds? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so thanks very much. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. You've been listening to Mediation Station on CHHA, 1610 AM.